I felt like it was time to speak up because when there was a push for gay marriage, what I heard the other side saying is kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. But functionally, what that means is kids don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. And after doing a couple decades of youth ministry and working in the world of adoption, I can tell you that there's nothing less true than that kids don't care when their mother or father is not in their life. I'd always had this sense of having connection to my past and having connection to the generations who went before me really through my father significantly. I cannot even imagine what it would be like to be a child who never had that connection, who never knew that connection. It makes child victims when we elevate adult desires, adult sexual feelings, adult sexual identity, um, adults' immediate needs or longings above the rights and well-being of children. People say that adults say, oh, kids are fine, whether it's divorce or whether it's um, uh, uh, the surrogacy or what have you, being raised by two dads, two moms, what, whatever. I'm not so sure how many people saying that kids are fine actually believe that or if it's just this assuaging of, of, of guilt and a recognition that, no, this is really about me more than about the child. Everybody wants to know the answer, who am I? And it's very hard to answer that question if we don't know whose am I. So when we mess with family structure, when we mess with someone's childhood, we mess with their entire life, their entire identity. In that case, the best I think that kids can experience is this need to compartmentalize and to shut off aspects of themselves, which ultimately does phenomenal damage to them individually, but also to future relationships. Difficulties in, in connecting because they they have disconnected from core areas where it's just too painful to feel. So we are now at the place, not where we are mourning the loss of mother and father, we are celebrating it as progress. Friends, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Love and Truth Network podcast. Whether you're joining us through a connection of Love and Truth Network or through Transforming Congregations, we're really glad that you're here. Whether you're listening to us or watching us, uh, we're happy that you've joined us. And I am really excited to introduce you today to Katie Faust. Uh, she's become a friend, and I admire greatly her work and uh, what her uh, really the movement of them before us is about and what it's doing. And excited for just to see how God expands and grows that ministry, not only nationally, but even globally. It's such an important work. And so, Katie, I'm so happy that you're here with us. Thanks for taking the time to be with us for this episode. So fun to be with you. I like your work. I'm a fan of what you're doing. Um, and it's a joy to be able to speak to your listeners, uh, because I think that there's going to be a lot of um, common threads and overlap between what you're doing and what we're doing. Yes, I agree. That's really, really true. So I would love it. Let's just dive right in. I'd love it if you'd share with our audience some of your story of what life was like before faith and and what it looks like to walk with Jesus now and how that led you even into this movement of them before yeah. us. It's so interesting because, um, you know, what we do with them before us is we defend children's rights to their mother and father. And, you know, we mm. often talk about how, thank God, there's hundreds of organizations defending children's right to life. We're the only ones that are defending children's rights on this side of the womb as it relates to their primary yes. relationships. And people will say, mm -hmm. like, how'd you get into this? And I, my answer is, I, I think it was a divine setup. I think that's what's going on mm -hmm. because you can look at all the different pieces and aspects of your life and your journey and say, never, I mean, I never would have been able to construct something that um, doesn't allow any of it go to go to waste, you know? So right. I grew up not in a Christian home. My parents were married until I was 10, and neither of them were religious. My father had an interest in mm. New Age, so if I went to church, I was going to a New Age church with him and did that largely through middle school and early high school. Um, my mom had been deeply wounded by Christians when she was young, and so she rejected it, not really out of um, intellectual, but because she associated it with cruelty, to be honest. Um, sure. And so it just wasn't mm -hmm. a part of my life at all. But um, my parents divorced when I was 10, and that was a shock to my system because I was clueless that anything was going on. Um, my, my dad moved out, um, thankfully moved to a house that wasn't that far away. They didn't have any, um, it was a 
good divorce in the sense that they were still friends. We sometimes spent holidays together. My father dated and eventually remarried. Very soon after the divorce, my mom repartnered with a woman and they've been together ever since. And so all throughout my middle school and high school years and then into my adulthood, um, I would split time between my dad's house and my mom's house, you know, my dad's house with his girlfriend or um, current wife um, or my mom's house where she was with her partner. And, you know, defying all of the odds in terms of longevity, they are still together now. Um, And it's interesting because I really haven't had any struggles or hostility or challenges um, between my mom and her partner. A lot of people will ask me, you know, um, you know, what are your, what is your, what do your two moms think about what you're doing right now? And my answer is, I don't have two moms. Nobody has two moms. Children have a mother and a father. Um, I don't consider my mother's partner to be my mother, but I do consider her to be my friend. We are friends. And I really loved her ever since she entered into my mom's life. So, um, you know, they've been a part of my life ever since I was really 10 and 11. Um, They've been a part of my husband's life, my children's life. I mean, we just did a big Christmas you know, gathering together a couple weeks ago. So um, it's interesting because I can look at obviously the pain and fallout of a divorce, even a good divorce, and see the instability that it inflicts on children in terms of moving between households, adjusting to new partners, uh, adjusting to the loss of those partners, rejoining new partners, sometimes who may or may not have children with them in tow. Um, but also, you know, this actually very natural um love that I have for the LGBT community and, and honestly, a total comfort with people that identify as gay and lesbian. Like I just kind of grew up with it. So it's interesting because I've met a friend, one of my kids, friends, mothers, you know, two mothers. And I looked at them and I just thought, Oh, I know you. I know you. I mean, I've been, I've been hanging out with you since before you guys were born. <laughs> you know, So, um, you know, this ministry that I now have, which actually confronts a variety of forms of modern family, um, I can do that on the basis of the well-being of children, but never with animosity or hostility towards the adults that are creating those household structures. So um, I was invited to a church, a real church with um, a real youth group that believed scripture when I was in high school, I became a Christian as a junior um, after the youth pastor spent a couple of years revealing Christ to me in his behavior and through the word of God. Um, and then, but I was still an idiot, like partying, um, swearing, just, I mean, living for the world kind of girl. And then finally, when I was a senior in high school, I just gave it all over to God. And um, a couple months later, went to college, met my husband, who was also a brand new Christian. Um, We grew in the Lord together. Um, Thank God there was a little church outside off of our college campus that just discipled us, just showed us what it looked like to be Christians that explained, honestly, God's design for sex and gender to me. Because, um, you know, when you there is a natural protectiveness, and I would say a God-given protectiveness that children have for their parents. And I certainly had that. I felt like I had to be the apologist for my dad and my mom because I loved them. And I, you know, it did, it, it's hard to look at what your parents are doing and say, that's wrong, even if you've experienced some of the consequences and fallout of it. So, um, you know, God absolutely captured my heart when I was in high school loving him with all my mind, especially as it relates to his commandments about sex and marriage, that took a little bit longer. Um, So it was a growing time and this little church just totally discipled us. Then we moved to Taiwan for the first year of our marriage, um, like legit leave and cleave, like leave and cleave. After that, we moved to Colorado so my husband could get his Master of Divinity. He's now a pastor, or has been since then. Um, But while he was in seminary, I worked at a Chinese adoption agency. So I became very, very familiar with um, adoption standards, adoption best practice. I mean, like I've walked the floors of orphanages of children who were stuffed two and three per crib and, you know, seen children who had fingertips that looked like light bulbs that were blue because they had holes in their heart that hadn't been fixed um, and understood 
why adoption is an institution centered around the well-being of children, but adoptive parents can never fully compensate for the loss of a child's first family. So, you know, then we had our own kids, three of them, um, and then God called us to adopt our youngest child from China. Um, and then God forced me to get into the culture war space um, when the topic of gay marriage came up. Um, like I, on the spectrum of grace giver and truth teller, I'm a grace giver. I don't like losing my friends. I love being loved. So it took a lot to get me sort of off the couch and onto the keyboard when it came to speaking up about marriage, you know, because obviously the some of the people I love the most are same-sex attracted and in relationships with, you know, a, a same-sex partner. Um, I didn't want to upset that. And I had a lot of other LGBT friends like all of us do. And um, I cherish those relationships. But to me, I felt like it was time to speak up because when there was a push for gay marriage, what I heard the other side saying is kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. But functionally, what that means is kids don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. And after doing a couple decades of youth ministry and working in the world of adoption, I can tell you that there's nothing less true than that kids don't care when their mother or father is not in their life. You know, at minimum with adoptees, it's a curiosity. It's a wondering. It's a question of why did they abandon me? You know, why didn't they want me? Where are they now? Do they know that I, like, who, who are they? Am I like them? To you know, the other extreme, which is an absolute um, destabilization of your entire life, questioning your self-worth, um, hating yourself because your father decided to leave you, you know, dealing with massive instability and insecurity because your parents chose an easy exit from their marriage and now you're dealing with split homes and split lives. I mean, I, the idea that kids don't care if they're separated from their mother or father, to me, was a weaponization of children's most primal wounds for the sake of political gain. So I started writing about why marriage is a matter of justice for children, um, quickly realized that every marriage and family issue makes child victims when we elevate adult desires, adult sexual feelings, adult sexual identity, um, adult immediate needs or longings above the rights and well-being of children. So that's what Then Before Us is. It's looking at every marriage and family issue from the definition of marriage to divorce to cohabitation to same-sex parented families to parents who transition to polygamy to reproductive technologies like sperm and egg donation and IVF and surrogacy to adoption and every single one of those conversations are first prioritize then right the rights and well-being of children and then look at what the adults want but not the other way around right yeah. And I, uh, in that, that's a, an exhaustive list that you just went through. And I, the, the one thing I remember from reading your book also is, and, and some other sources too, is the, in addition to everything else that you mentioned, the, the higher rate of the risk of abuse of one form or another, when, uh, it's not a biological mom or dad, of course, abuse can happen there too, but the, it, the but the rate of increase is much higher when you're introducing somebody else into, uh, a stepfather or stepmother or boyfriend or girlfriend or what have you. Oh. Correct. Yeah, exactly. You know, in our book, um, which is sort of the manual for our children's rights movement, it is, it will make you an expert. If you have any questions about any of these household structures, um, we will make you the expert. We will make you um, a supreme defender of the rights of children because it is stuffed full of not just natural law, but the highest level social it science is. and the stories of kids who have had to live it. And so when you're done with the book, you will not be able to believe or repeat the phrase, love makes a family right? You will know that if you're concerned about child safety, the formation of a stable identity, child development, and meeting the deepest emotional needs they have, that you will advocate for a child being raised by their biological mother and father in a lifelong marriage whenever possible, because anything else drastically increases the risk of abuse, neglect, um, it subjects children to identity struggles and identity issues. It starves them of some of their developmental needs. And honestly, it creates a mother hunger and a father hunger that Gary, as you've talked about, kids will find ways to satisfy and yes. they won't be in through pathways of um, protectiveness and genuine love.
You know, something else you mentioned, there's a couple of things that come to my mind, actually quite a few. So I'm just trying to hone hone in on a couple or I'll forget them all. As you're sharing is when, when my dad passed away, he was 88 and my mom and dad had lived with me and Melissa, my wife and our family for quite a few years. And you know, part of my story that I'm very open about is, first of all, I'm very grateful that my dad was my dad, you know, but as, as an adult, but as a kid growing up with him, it was, it was, um, not the best. And I really hated him in my teenage years. And, but God drew me back in and, and drew me out of, uh, the homosexual world, the LGBT world into relationship with him. And then ultimately began really repairing relationship. He began repairing relationship between my dad and I, my mom and I always were pretty close. And, but, when my dad passed away and died on, on hospice in our home, I, you know, I, I was so grateful to be able to take care of him and kind of pushing the nurses out of the way and just like, nope, I want to, I want to do all of this. You show me what to do. And I want to do all this. And it was just a, a, a time of increased kind of intimacy and connection. All the walls were down. He was going to be stepping out of this life into the next very soon. And there was just a, a really deep and tender um, increase in what had already been a good couple of maybe decades of relationship with him. But what I remembered when he passed away, the, I, I couldn't, I mean, the, the, my mom was still with us for another five years and, and I was so grateful for that, but there was something in dad's passing, even though I was closer to my mom, I couldn't identify what it was for probably a couple of weeks. And then it just, that what kind of came to me uh, uh, kind of prayerfully was just this sense of being unmoored. Mm -hmm. Like I'd I'd always had this sense of uh, uh, an unconscious sense, didn't even think about it, of having connection to my past and having connection to the generations who went before me really through my father significantly. And so when he passed away, there was something that I had to kind of experience and deal with and a pain of losing him for sure. But then also that, that feeling of, wait a minute, what's just happened? I feel like I'm kind of untethered or the, the, the secure rope that kind of connected me to my history is gone. I cannot even imagine what it would be like to be a child who never had that connection, who never knew that connection, and just always had that, like you said, um, it 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 can it worst it's it's um, uh, devastating for the long term and and for uh, in great ways in in a child's life. At best, like the the word that came to me is just this kind of this constant void, uh, some kind of a void of something that can't ever fill that. I mean, God can meet us. Yes. And he's so gracious to do that. And I don't, outside of that, what else is there, but that void and that emptiness, I can only imagine what that must feel like for a child that did not know one, one or both of their parents. So this is exactly right. Um, and, um, experts have a, a phrase for this and it's called genealogical bewilderment, right? They literally don't know they're trying to figure out who they are. They look at themselves in their mirror and they're like, I don't know where I belong. I don't know who I am. And it's so fascinating because we'll have stories of children who are raised by a mother and father and they were told, this is your father, right? All their life. And then they take a 23andMe test or there's a deathbed revelation and they are told your father is not your father. And it just craters them. I mean, they are adrift because they thought that they had that anchor to the past. They thought that they were connected to this huge kinship network. And all of a sudden they realized that that branch, they're, they're just a lone branch, right? They're not connected to a tree. And they go through this, they're plunged into an identity crisis very, very often, even though they had a loving mom and a loving dad. There is something critical. And I mean, it's, it's a testimony to the fact that, you know, other than pornography, ancestry sites are like the most trafficked um, websites that we have online because everybody wants to know the answer, who am I? And it's very hard to answer that question if we don't know whose am I. So when we mess with family structure, when we mess with someone's childhood, we mess with their entire life, their entire identity. And, you know, throughout humanity, there's been times where we've experienced father loss, sometimes due to a mass scale in times of war. We've experienced occasional mother loss when you're talking about like maternal death. But there was almost always a tragic explanation. That's not what's happening today in the world of law, culture, and technology. Now children are not losing their mother and father to tragedy. They're losing them commercially, commercially, intentionally, and because the seal of approval 
of mother loss and father loss has come through the courts and through legislative efforts. So we are now at the place, not where we are mourning the loss of mother and father, we are celebrating it as progress. Yes. Uh, that I mean, I, I mean, just think about that as you're listening, watching this. Uh, just what Katie just said. I mean, that that shift. Of course, we know uh, that the scriptures teach that good will become evil and evil will become good. And I remember as a kid thinking, how is that even? I mean, I, I I believe the Bible and and I wrestle with a lot of things that are in there in terms of my own life and my own walk and all that. But I couldn't even fathom. Like, how does that even happen? How could that happen? Well, I mean, we're living it in spades, and 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 we're not even to the end result yet by a long shot. But yes, we're, we're seeing that shift. Another thing you mentioned, Katie, as you were sharing earlier, is the idea that people say, that adults say, oh, kids are fine, whether it's divorce or whether it's um, uh, uh, surrogacy or what have you, being raised by two dads, two moms, what, whatever. Of course, we're going, we'll be going into polyamory and a, on a big, big scale, yeah. I think too. I'd love to talk with you about that. But, but the thing, um, that strikes me about what you just, you said and the, the assumption, and I'm not so sure, I'm not, I'm not so sure how many people saying that kids are fine actually believe that, or if it's just this assuaging of, of, of guilt and a recognition that no, this is really about me more than about the child. Um, if they even allow themselves to consciously think that, but what drives me crazy is that the assumption that kids are fine is 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 just that it's it's an assumption or it's this belief that I have to hold on to because I can't feel what they're feeling but the problem is is no one's asking the kids right. i mean no, the the problem is is that the kids hearts aren't really being shepherded in this process and one of the things i remember in the book uh, in them before us is that like children will oftentimes feel a secondary kind of guilt um for like having a mom and dad who love them, an adoptive mom and dad uh, who love them, or or one of them is their biological and the other one's not parent, but but feeling kind of guilty, like why why can't I be satisfied with this? What and can you speak to that a little bit in what you've understood either of those points? Yeah. You know, I think that kids we kind of break things up into three different categories of child loss, and you know we're not talking about tragic loss where parents die. Um, we are talking about children who lose their mother or father because adult desire is elevated above their rights. So that happens in three main categories: divorce and abandonment, reproductive technologies, and LGBT-headed homes. Right, and in each one of those, right, when a child loses their mother or father because adult desires elevated above their rights, they are living in a home where they're missing a mother or father full-time or part-time. Um, and they actually have to become the adult in the relationship, right? What happens when the adult prioritizes their own immediate gratification, their own romantic fulfillment, right? Somebody in the parent-child relationship is going to be understanding, accommodating, and supportive. Now, typically, adults are supposed to be that for children. But when adult desire is elevated above children's rights, the children have to be understanding, supportive, and accommodating of the parents, right? They have to validate their identity. They have to be grateful that they were created as a motherless or fatherless child. They have to be thankful that now their father has found love or whatever it is. And so it actually places a significant psychological burden on children. And one of the children that we sort of profiled in that was a woman named Millie Fontana, who was raised by two loving women, created through sperm donation. Um, reared in a community that was open and affirming. And Heather Barwick, it's the same kind of thing, right? These two different women who were raised by two moms in a community where everybody thought that love makes a family and nobody was telling these kids they should have a dad. And yet they craved a dad. They craved a dad. You know, Millie talks about how she would like pull down the photo albums after everybody went to bed and just leaf through and try to find any man that looked like her. And Heather talks about how she alternated between hating her father for leaving her and desperately wishing that he would come back because she wanted to know him so much. And then this absolute like conflict they had in them because everybody in their life were saying, you shouldn't want a dad. You should be happy the way you are. The problem is that you'll never legislate away a child's longing to be loved by their mother and father. You cannot, not through the decision of a Supreme Court, not through technologically tinkering with kids, not through repeating the kids will be fine over and over and over and over and over and over and over. None of that is ever going to remake the nature of children, which is that they have a right, a longing, and a need to know both their mother and father. So our laws are either going to understand and respect children for who they are, 
or we are going to gaslight them and force loss upon them so that we can elevate adult sexual desire as God. Those are the two options. In that case, the best, I think that the best that kids can experience is this need to compartmentalize and to shut off aspects of themselves, which ultimately does phenomenal damage to them individually, but also to future relationships, their their own um, uh, spousal relationship, their with their own children, difficulties in, in connecting because they they have disconnected from core areas where it's just too painful mm-hmm. to feel. So the damage is 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 not just short term, uh, for sure. Oh, it's I mean, intergenerational. It's, it's long term yes. in their life. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, one of the things too, I remember in reading your book, um, was I was fascinated as I was listening and I, and I felt like, and, and you're so right about the book in terms of its, its equipping component is so good. All that, that you guys put in there, um, is essential uh, information. And I, and, and, and in going through your book, like I I'm familiar with a lot of these topics, but I felt like I was learning a ton. And, but one of the things I was, I remember feeling or thinking, I don't remember what chapter you get to this, but leading up to the chapter where you talk about adoption, I'm like, what about adoption? And, and I knew that you'd get there, but I was wondering, and it was a, it was a, and you did a great job. You guys did a great job of of unpacking that and explaining the difference between um, adoption and these other forms of really commodification of children on some level or another, or putting adult needs above children's needs. But can you um, kind of explain, and you touched on it saying adoption still, there's still a gap there. It's not perfect because what a child desires and was made for was their their biological mom and dad. But can you make a distinction between all of these others? I'm putting my needs above a child's needs versus um, what adoption is meant to yeah. do. Yeah, so I think one of the reasons why My guess is you are incredibly familiar with a lot of these topics. I mean, Gary, you've been doing this for decades. And so um, it's not like what we're saying at them before us is new in the sense of recognizing that biology matters in the parent-child relationship, recognizing that male and female offer distinct and complementary benefits to children. I mean, we've long recognized that children get their biological identity from both biological parents. And that's why adoption best practice in this country has shifted from overwhelmingly closed adoptions to 95% of adoptions being open adoption. So it's like, we're actually talking about things that have long been accepted. But the reason why my guess is people, why we have more influence than we deserve in this space is because we are taking things that are absolutely true, things that a lot of people have said and believed for the long time, uh, the longest time, but we are framing it in a, in a very easy to understand package. And that is adults need to do hard things for children. Children should not do hard things for adults. And you can actually take that template. Children have a right to their mother and father. The onus is on all adults, single, married, gay, straight, fertile, and infertile to prioritize the rights of children because the only alternative is to force children to sacrifice for you. And that's an injustice. So we go through all these different manifestations of family. Um, and you know, the ideal being the form of family where a child does not have to lose a relationship with their mother or father to be in it. That is the lifelong heterosexual union of their parents. Um, and we go issue by issue, you know, family breakdown to family breakdown. And we look at how adult desire is being elevated above child rights and well-being in each of those. They are forcing, you know, in situations of sperm and egg donation, they are forcing the child to do the hard thing of losing a relationship with a biological parent. So you can meet your longing for some kind of connection with a biological child. The same sex attracted adult is Orient is orienting their family around their attractions, um, and that will always necessitate children losing their mother or father. The parents in the struggling marriage are opting for a no-fault divorce, even though it's proven to have diminished impact on children's physical, mental, emotional, academic, and their own relational health, right? So then you get to adoption. What is adoption as it's properly understood? So in all these other family forms, what you see is adult desire being elevated above the child's rights. The people that are raising the child, it, their decisions have forced the child to lose a relationship with their mother, father, or both, partially or fully. Okay. What is going on in adoption? In adoption, the adults are seeking to mend the child's wound. They are not the ones that inflicted the child's wound. The child had a wound, either because they tragically lost their parent to some accident or Their biological parents were unable or unwilling to raise the child. And so the child 
at, at the beginning of adoption experiences loss. And honestly, woe to thus those of us on the right and woe to people, especially in the pro-life movement, who in defense of a pro-life narrative have minimized the cost to children and to birth mothers when they go through this process of relinquishment because it is no small sacrifice for either mother or baby to be separated from their mother and or father, but especially their mother the day that they are born. It is what adoptees have long referred to as a primal wound. So there is a loss associated with children of adoption. They experience from infancy often the primal wound, the disrupted bond between mother and child. They experience, they're at risk for the identity struggles that a lot of adoptees have long reported. Um, and they deserve to have that wound mended. And from a just society's perspective, adoption is the ultimate tool we can use to seek to mend that wound. And I say seek to mend that wound because as you and I have been discussing, there are some wounds that just simply are never gonna be healed on this side of heaven. There just aren't, right? I have not yet met any Christian that has all of their longings fulfilled. On, I, almost every Christian, I can say, what's the unfulfilled longing that you have that you're just desperately waiting for God to heal? Everybody's got something. Everybody has something, you know, whether it is, I would love for him to remove my same-sex attraction. I would love for him to lift this infertility. I desperately want to be married. I don't want to be single, but I have not met the right person. Um, maybe it is a health condition. God, desperately, please take this thorn out of my side. And I don't know. God doesn't say yes. I, I feel like there's one thing that each of us carry where he says, in heaven, in heaven then. And I have found that for adoptees, you can seek to mend the wound. And some, some really are mended. Sometimes the adoptive parents really can so fully fill that gap that the child is healed. But I think that it's safer to say, and this is what I say about my own child, I can't fully compensate for everything that he has lost. But I will say that it is we who are conforming to his needs. It is not he who is conforming to our desires. And that does make all the difference when you're talking about all these sort of forms of modern family. Who is doing the sacrificing? In most forms of modern family, it's the kid. But in adoption, it is the adults who are seeking to conform their lives to a child who has experienced those primal losses. Yeah. So I would think in what you're sharing, and I, I so appreciate the way you're unpacking it, but I, what I'm kind of seeing as you're, as you're talking about adoption, that even within adoption, there probably are adults. And this, and as I say this, this is simply to just kind of draw attention to this reality and, and, and to be a, a gut check, a heart check for any of us who are considering adoption is what is our motivation for adoption? Um, I think even in adoption, uh, parent, uh, people who are considering adoption could be primarily concerned about their own desires and seeking to adopt to, to fill those desires. And of course there is a desire there and it's not, it's not that that's wrong, but to be aware that no, really biblically and, 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 and from a natural law perspective, even I need to be more concerned I need to be stirring up more concern for the need of the child that I'm going to adopt because, you know, as adoptive parents who want a child to simply love us and not even to be concerned about where they came from or what they lost or whatever, we can, we can ourselves put that child, I think, at, at a lot of um, struggle and risk because we're putting, again, our desires on them, even as adoptive parents. Um, so, and then there's other parents, I think that, that in, in the way that you're functioning with your adopted child of recognizing, I can never fill in all these gaps. You're going to have uh, pain and loss. I'm there for you in it, but I, I'm not expecting, I, I'm not putting pressure on you to meet my longings for you to find all of your, your needs met in me as, as a mom or a dad. Um, can you kind of speak to those two different perspectives? Yeah, a little yeah bit? absolutely. And you're exactly right. You know, sometimes people will say to us, um, you know, or we'll confront legislation that says LGBT, LGBT couples have a right to adopt. And they'll say, do you think that they have a right to adopt? And I'll say, nope, they do not have a right to adopt. That's because no adult has a right to adopt. 
Adoption is not for adults. Children who have lost their mother or father have a right to be adopted. Adults are not the climate. Adults are not the client in adoption. Children are the client. And so it's very important for us to think about adoption properly. Adoption doesn't exist for you. It does not exist for you, single guy or same-sex couple, to, you know, find a way to have kids when you don't have the equipment necessary to make them on your own. Adoption does not exist for you, infertile, heterosexual, Christian couple, um, even though you have not found a way to have children naturally. Adoption does not exist for adults. So I think that adoption is critical, noble, um, I think that it is a mandate for the church to care for orphans, but that does not mean that every adult should adopt. Adoption is you understanding that what you are going to do is graft a child into your family that has experienced incredible loss and pain, and then you are going to bear their burden. And you know, we the language these days in adoption, like you know, we went through our home study. 13 years ago now. And then we did like an update for a finalization or something. And the language is, do you commit? Do you understand that adoption is a lifelong process of understanding, you know, that your child is going to come to different uh, revelations and they're going to process at different ways and different times and that you are there to assist them in that. And that is the right way to think about it. They have a burden they're going to understand that at different ways and different times throughout their life. And you are there to bear their burden. They are not there to fill your burden and to meet your need. So adoption is altogether good, but it's not for everybody. Adoption does not exist primarily to meet your desire or to complete your family. Adoption exists for the child and all adults have to go into it with that kind of mindset. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. So well said. I, uh, what I think one of the things that I, that your book really helped to unpack and clarify for me um, more about is something that I was aware of prior to reading your book. But honestly, I was more aware of it through the Catholic Church than I have been through the Protestant Church. I've had lots of Protestant uh, friends and people, Christians who I've known over the course of time who talk about IVF as just this amazing and wonderful thing that now, you know, we can have children. And and two things I wanted to um, chat with you about here. Can you unpack that a little bit more to give us a, a better perspective of what that involves and why that can be so damaging for children? And then secondly, one of the things I think you do a great job of in your book as well is speaking out of compassion for the longing that may never be resolved in this life of a mom or dad who long to have children and aren't able to have children apart from doing something like IVF. Can you kind of speak to those two um, pieces? Well, one thing, there's a couple threads that run through the work that we do. One is uh, don't make kids sacrifice for you. Children have a right to life. Yeah. They have a right to their mother and father. You bend to their needs. Don't force them to bend to you. So that is one sort of common theme. But the other common theme is when you look at all these different issues, what you're looking at is genuine adult struggle. You are looking at some very serious, I would say some of the greatest heartaches that an adult can face. I mean, you know, when I'm not podcasting with you and writing articles for whatever, the Federalist, um, and traveling and speaking and advocating on behalf and testifying to committees that want to strip children of their rights. I'm in the counseling office with my husband, who's a pastor, working through marital conflict and counseling people with same-sex attraction and reading scripture with 40-year-old women who know that their chance to be a mother is drawing almost completely to a close. And these are massive burdens that adults place. I'm, I'm never going to minimize them right? These are huge struggles, heartaches. You know, when you talk about like infertility, my friends who have dealt with infertility, I mean, it is a crushing load. It's all they can think about. They obsess over it. It's what they, the last thing they think about going to bed, the first thing they think about, you know, they're no longer have intimacy with their husband. They only have efforts to procreate, you know? I mean, it is just tunnel vision. Um, and it's because there is something very good about longing for children. So I, I don't want to minimize the struggle that adults face. However, no amount of adult struggle or longing or loss justifies violating children's rights. We have to decide who is going to do the hard thing. Will it be the adults or will it be the child? 
And when you look at getting into the world of reproductive technologies, the answer is in nearly every case, some child is going to pay the price for adult desires. When you look at IVF, what that means is that only 7% of babies that are created in those Petri dishes will be born alive. 93% of embryos are going to be discarded, deemed non-viable and donated, or like donated to research that is, and they're not donating them to another, they're experimenting on children. They will be deemed surplus and frozen. They will be deemed the wrong sex and discarded. They won't make the grade in terms of sort of the uh, eugenic selection process that you can now subject embryos to. Um, if they survive the thaw and the transfer, uh, many of them will not develop properly. Um, if they do take and too many develop, um, selective reduction, that is abortion, between week 12 and week 20 is regularly employed if it looks like the child isn't developing the way you want or you've got too many kids developing altogether. And the result is that the baby making industry, big fertility, destroys more embryonic lives than the baby taking industry, than abortion. So big fertility, reproductive technologies, primarily IVF, commodifies human life to a degree that not even planned parenthood can compete with. Now, this was very, very clear. I know that a lot of you guys are like, what, what are you talking about? After the Dobbs decision came down, where it was clear that abortion was now going to be a state's issue, you had fertility doctors in red states absolutely panicking, saying, "We, if, if there is some kind of trigger law that determines that children are a human life from the moment of conception, okay, we can't do business in this state any longer. We are going to have to move out of state because the entire business model is built on creating huge numbers of embryos and whittling them down to only the desirables and planting a few and freezing the rest. So this is not a pro-life technology. This is not a pro-child industry. This is a for-profit, this is not a benevolent nonprofit adoption agency. This is a for-profit industry. And any of you guys who have gone through IVF, if you have done it with your pro-life convictions intact, you know that you had to fight the industry and your doctors at every step of the way because it destroys their business model. It undermines their success rates. So that's the first thing you need to know, that when you're making children in a laboratory, it is not good for kids because most of them won't survive the process. Is there, um, I know someone who is highly tuned into all that you just described in terms of IVF and has said that they went about a process that was much more expensive and also just what you said, the doctors were completely against it. And it was the idea that they would not produce um, any uh, embryos, any life that were that would be discarded or um, used for research or frozen, but whatever the few that they did uh, would be implanted. And so is there any way, and I might not even be saying that exactly correctly, but is there any way that IVF can be done in a way where where children are not, uh, as, as embryos discarded, um, die, um, you know, where, where it's ethical uh, to engage in well, that? Well, it depends on your source of authority. Um, in terms of children's rights, there are ways of using IVF that do not destroy children's right to life or right to their mother and father. It is incredibly cost prohibitive because the most affordable way, the only thing that most people can afford, even if they're taking out massive loans, is to extract 20 eggs, fertilize all of them. Eight of them look good. Discard the other 12. Select the two that are, you know, one boy, one girl. Implant. Freeze the other six. I mean, most people don't have the money to just create two over and over and over and over and reimplant those two or that one each time because failure rates are extremely high. Better to create them all in one batch and then save a few for later. So you have described a scenario that from a children's rights perspective does not destroy right to life, right to mother and father. But then you need to look at the bioethical perspective, which is, is it permissible to in essence have a technician preside over a child's creation rather than the maker of the world and the one that knit their bodies together in the womb? Is that are we, we are moving from 
um, reproduction to pro to, we're from creation to production, right? We're moving from, we are allowing this child to be created to, we are producing them. So you have to look at that from a bioethics perspective. And so a lot of bioethicists would say like IVF simply isn't permissible. Then you can look at it from a legal perspective and people will say, well, what if we just allow for only infertile heterosexual couples to use that? Well, the reality is that once you open the door for that legally, there really is no way to shut the door on people that are mass producing children, especially once you get to a surrogacy perspective, you know, where you can then implant multiple women with multiple embryos. You know, we've got a, a guy called the baby factory dad in Japan that created we're not exactly sure about 20 kids in the course of one or two years through Thai and Cambodia, Thai and Indian surrogates who are just raising them in a big like nanny harem in Japan. There's a woman in Russia who's 26 years old and she had 22 kids in one year. I mean, so it's, if you open the door to IVF because you're like, but there's some teeny, teeny cases, like one to 2% that won't destroy, you know, children's right to life or right to their mother and father. You want that little carve out for you. Making babies in a laboratory, FYI, this is not getting better. This is not getting better. I mean, right now we have technology developed, being developed in China, robot nannies um, that can oversee babies in artificial wombs and determine their oxygen and nutrition levels, depending on whether or not you want the baby to thrive or, or snuff their life out. Making babies in laboratories, throws the door open to the most Gattaca kind of situations that, I mean, more Gattaca than Gattaca. So it's like, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want a world that in essence respects, and I'm, you know, I'll borrow from my Catholic friends who I'm, I'm ashamed to say are far, far ahead of us evangelicals, the dignity of the child, or are we going to allow ourselves to say, yeah, but an adult wants something. Well, and that reminds me, as you say that too, it seems like whether it's abortion uh, saying, oh yeah, but what about rape and incest? Or it's uh, with within the LGBTQIA acronym, the, oh, well, what about intersex? And so therefore, and so that somehow that somehow is supposed to justify all of transgenderism and all of this desire for a man to become a woman, a woman to become a man, et cetera. And, and there's always, so it seems like there's always that, that, 1% yeah. or less than 1% uh, that that kind of is the what if, and it winds up being sort of, in many ways, kind of the red herring yeah. that winds up justifying in some fact, not justifying, but um, yeah. I'm not thinking, it doesn't it. justify. But There's a some, term for it. It's called yeah. edge cases, right? You have these edge cases, right? The rape and incest yes. when it comes to abortion, right? The, oh yeah, but don't you mm -hmm. want two, wouldn't two men be better than an abusive biological, you know, mom and dad, right? right? That's what they do for all of these different situations. They pull out the edge cases, right? The teeny little exception to the rule. And then they use that exception to overturn the rule. And so that exists really in every marriage and family debate, um, too. And so we do have to be, we have to watch out for those edge cases and deal with them fairly, but establish the rule. Children have a right to life. Children have a right to their mother and father. A child's own biological mother and father raising them is going to produce the most outcomes in, you know, nearly every case. Biology affords a level of protection that intending to parent simply will not. You know, yes, some adoptees are going to be okay and never wonder about their biological parents, but the vast majority of adoptees do at some point go, scour the internet to try to find out who's my mom and dad. So we need to respond to the edge cases because a lot of times people won't even allow themselves to consider the rule unless you do, but the edge cases are not the rule. And it honestly, it is adult centric narrative that pushes those to the forefront because we so want the kids to be okay. You know, and it's back to your, you know, saying, well, are the kids will be all right. You know, we've been saying that since no fault divorce. Well, the kids will be all right. The kids are resilient. And you know, it's so funny because I know a lot of people that would say, no, kids deserve a mom and dad. We're going to stay married until it's something they want, until they're the one getting drawn into the affair with the secretary, you know, until they're the one that really is dealing with infertility. And then suddenly, oh, kids are resilient. Kids will be fine. Right. I mean, it really is the the kind of catch-all to justify whatever adult decision is about to lay the child's rights and well-being on the altar of their own desires. Well, and, and I mentioned earlier, this reminds me as well of just what I mentioned a little bit about polyamory and, and, and connecting to what we're talking about. 
I I had read some time ago, and I would love your your thoughts on this. That I don't know if it was four or five, six years ago, maybe even longer ago. That that there was um, that scientists, doctors had had spliced. Uh, this, there was essentially, I think it was a baby that was that had been born that was uh, biologically from two two men and a woman or somehow that somehow that um or or the other way around i can't remember now but the, even this this splicing and uh and and um scientifically making it possible for there to be biological connection to more than just one man and one woman are you have you seen or read much about yeah. that so the process that you're talking about is called mitochondrial transfer where if there is a woman who ha- carries a mitochondrial disease, you can cut out the nucleus um, and put the health, put the woman's nu- the cell of her egg into a healthy mitochondria of a, a donor. And so the mitochondria does not contribute, it contributes hardly any genetics, but there is a trace of genetic connection to it. And so this is being pitched in some ways as a reparative therapy in the sense that the child won't supposedly won't have mitochondrial. We have an entire thing, a mitochondrial transfer, uh, MRT, MRT. It's on our website. We go into a whole detail about it, but it's so fascinating because in one breath, right? The LGBT community will say, well, biology doesn't matter. Love makes a family, right? So that we can discard the child's mother or father. And then on the other side, they say, oh, yay, mitochondrial transfer. That means that we can both be biologically related. And it's fascinating because biology doesn't matter if it gets in the way of what adults want. But biology really matters if it's exactly what adults want. And so the mitochondrial conversation really highlights that. Now, the mitochondrial transfer is scary, and there's a lot of ethical pitfalls for a variety of reasons that we go into on that article, but that's not the main technological threat to kids. They are developing processes right now, because here's the thing, like egg, very hard to get. I mean. Women release one per month. They're precious and rare. Sperm, easy to get to, right? You know, every 72 hours, you've got a huge couple hundred thousand that you have access to or whatever. Um, It's very hard to get human egg. And that's really challenging for men that want to create motherless babies, right? You have to go to a catalog. You have to pay a couple thousand dollars. On top of that, then you have to find a woman who's going to rent her womb to you for another nine and a half months. I mean, it's very cumbersome. So what they really want to do is they want to cut women out of the reproductive process altogether. And uh, that is where the artificial womb development is is coming into play. I have an article that'll be coming out on that in hopefully another month or two. Um, But the other thing they want to do is, wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't have to have a woman contribute her egg? Um, And so what they're doing in that sense is they're going, they're working to create a human egg cell out of some other cell of the body, like a, a a scraping of skin um, or a blood cell or something. They take some kind of other cell in the body and then create a human egg out of it. And so what this means is you could take skin from somebody that has been dead for 10, 20, a hundred years. Yeah. Wouldn't it almost be more like cloning in a well, sense? Who knows? Or some kind of combination I mean, like, of we're, it? We're yeah. heading into an era where like, we don't actually have words for the kind right. of experimentation on children that we are pursuing. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's all in the name of science and helping, you know, it's honestly being phrased in the realm of this is equality. This is reproductive equality, right? It's unequal. It's unjust that this single man or these two men or these three women cannot have a child on their own. Um, and so like, what do you have? Like we've got a future, maybe 10 or 15 years, maybe 20 years from now where a man can be both biological mother and biological father, an egg from his skin cell and his own sperm, um, gestated in a container that wasn't a real woman to begin with. It is very, very important that all adults, but especially Christians, get very clear on reproductive technologies right now because we are about to move into an era of such devastating and shocking forms of child exploitation and commodification. And and it's happening under the guise of, oh, but we have an infertile friend. And um, that's not even what's happening. I mean, today... That's what we think of when we think of reproductive technologies. But what it really is, is a mass industry of foreign born, you know, Chinese citizens make up about 40% of the California surrogate market. A huge percentage of those are older single men. 
the kids just disappear back into China. You know, no, there's not, they're not known to social workers. I'm about to come out with an article this week on, you know, five child predators that created children through surrogacy for the sole purpose of exploiting them. I mean, it is, I, I probably can't swear on this podcast, but it's a crap show. <laughs> I mean, we are subjecting children to the most egregious abuses to not just their dignity, but their bodies. So it's very important that all of us who especially proclaim to love Christ, us Christians who are charged primarily with child protection, um, that we get this right. There's really no margin for error on right. any of these marriage or family issues. Yeah. Well, Katie, thank you so much. Uh, this has been incredibly informative. I've always loved listening to you share, do workshops and uh, reading your materials. So uh, would you share with our um, listeners and viewers just how they can find your materials and what's the best way of, uh, you know, whether it's a website or whatever, best way of following you? Thenbeforeus.com, go to the bottom and subscribe. Um, we just send one newsletter a week and we'll keep you up to date on all the different projects we have going on this year, which are lit as mm. the youth would say. Yes. Like there's so much going on <laughs> um, in terms of taking this child-centric message into culture, law, technology, and this year we're taking on big business too. Um, we've got a podcast where you can audio, you know, just kind of become an audio expert on a lot of what we're talking about. Mm. You can find that at all the places where you find your um, podcasts. Then before us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement is your handbook for becoming an expert. It's mm. great as a reference. Like we have collated um, the highest scholarship in terms of social science, but it's also the place where you're going to be able to read the stories of, you know, a couple dozen kids who were raised with two moms or two dads yes. and experienced father hunger to really understand how being treated like a designer product impacted children created through reproductive technologies and maybe making sense out of your own parents' divorce in terms of talking about the impact that it has on a child long-term. Mm. So, that's probably the best resource in terms of if you want to become an instant yep. expert. Um, I'm on Twitter too much. So okay. you can find me there great. too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's great. And so um, we've talked, we've focused in this uh, podcast nearly exclusively around them before us, which is so huge. But you you and um, your co-author, uh, Stacy, I forget her last name now, you guys came out with a, another book very recently called Raising uh, Conservative Kids in a Woke City. So good. I you know read it cover to cover. Excellent uh, uh, book as well. I'd love to talk to you about that. And I believe you're also coming out in a couple of months with a, uh, a resource um, for the church specifically on some of those topics. Is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, I'm very passionate about two things. One, when it comes to marriage and family issues, I'm very passionate about don't touch the kids, leave the kids alone. Yes. But I'm also very passionate mm -hmm. about like looking at the absolute damaging and dangerous ideology in culture. I'm very passionate about don't touch my kids, leave my kids alone. So the first book is about uh, the first issue, but our second book, that I co-authored both books with Stacey Manning. Um, the second book is about how do you transmit your worldview to your kids when everything's against you? When the schools, their friends, maybe your extended family, perhaps even your church is lying to them about the nature of the world, about biological, economic, and historical reality. So between Stacey and I, we've got seven kids. We've raised them in Seattle. They've largely gone to public school and, um, and they're awesome. You know, they're kids that, yeah, they can stand on their own when needed. Um, they can refute and push back against aggressive adults. Um, they know what they believe and why. And, and honestly, the whole thing, the whole philosophy, the parenting philosophy that we lay out in raising conservative kids is a recipe for intimacy between parents and children. Like we are close to our kids and there's, there's no other way to pass on your worldview today without that kind of emotional intimacy. So it really is just timeless parenting principles kind of applied to our, our like insane cultural moment. Yes. Well, when your schedule opens, well, it's not going to open up. When you can squeeze us in another time in a couple of months or a few months down the road, we'd love to have you back to talk more about that, uh, that book and other resources. So, yes, and we'll talk uh, about the church that curriculum. Tuned in here. We, we do oh. have the church curriculum, yes. like a seven-part yes. video series where we do a lot of what Gary and I just did going issue by issue, talking about how it implicates mm. children's rights. But that's the one resource that we have that's going to connect the dots between um, the universal authority of natural law and the 
special revelation of God's word, right? We are going to put those two together yes. in that video curriculum. Um, so we can, we can talk about that exclusively when it comes out, if you want. Yeah, no, that's great. And when, when it does, I would love to, as I travel and speak at churches and, and all of that, I'd love to have that as a resource I'm letting people know about as well. Yeah. So uh, friends, thanks for tuning in here and listening, watching whatever you've been doing here with our podcast. We're so grateful that you have tuned in. I know that this has been kind of a fire hose experience and really good information. I hope that you are encouraged by, I hope you're stirred up to do more research, to get a hold of, uh, of them before us, the book and on the website. But uh, thank you again for being here. I hope you turn into another episode of Love and Truth Network podcast. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real joy. It's a joy to be with you. And let me just say, I've been following Gary and his work for a long, long time. And if you're not mm. financially supporting them, you should be. Because there's just not a lot of voices that get these issues exactly right and do it in a pastoral way. So, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm around the block all the time. I like, I do all kinds of conferences, speaking, reading. I mean, I am in this and, and what Gary is doing and what he is about is really not happening in any other space. So, um, I, he won't mm -hmm. say it. I'm going to say it. You need to subscribe to his podcast. <laughs> you need to share this with a friend and you need to consider financially supporting him. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Katie. Bless yeah, you. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us for this Love and Truth Network podcast. To listen to or watch future episodes, please check us out at loveandtruthnetwork.com forward slash podcast. Also, you can subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And we look forward to seeing you in a future episode.